Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with my producer, Phineas. Phineas, who are we chatting with today? Today, we have Jose Saldana, who is an incredible leader in the world of incarceration. And specifically, his focus is on ending incarceration for the older and aging population in prisons. His organization is called RAP, which stands for Release Aging People in Prison. And I thought you had a really inspiring conversation with him. There's a ton of evidence that people age out of criminality is, I think, the word that's used. And also, we have this system where people uh, face these parole boards, and it seems like the default is to say no to the person asking to be released. So when they meet people, you know, often hear these sentences, oh, they have 25 to life, meaning they are up for release at their 25th year. And a lot of Jose's work is about saying Unless they behave badly, 25 years should be the sentence. And the way the system is oriented now, it's actually incentivized to not let them out. And oftentimes it looks at what happened on the night of the crime, which Jose and his allies feel like is irrelevant. That's what the sentence was for. What the parole board hearing should be all about is what happened post-conviction during their time incarcerated. Do they seem to be a danger? Have they continued to cause problems in some capacity? If not, that minimum sentence should be the sentence. Creating a presumption of release at those parole board hearings. I thought that was a fascinating moment. It's like just a simple perspective shift, right? Yeah. And honestly, I was excited to chat with Jose because COVID has opened our eyes to many things, but the dangers that this virus presented had folks in the CGR space start paying more attention to this particular problem of aging prisoners, which was an important light because then you start asking, well, can we release these people? And when you start exploring that question of, can you release someone or are you creating a danger to the public? The answer time and time again, when you looked at these cases is no, there's no danger to the public. And then the question becomes, well, why are we holding people so long anyways? Why are people spending their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, dying in prison because of something they did in their teenage years if they're no longer a threat to society decades before that? And the work they're doing right now is so interesting. It's really pragmatic solutions to tackle these problems. And um, we're not talking about a marginal decarcerative piece of legislation. These are things that could, you know, fundamentally shift how many people are spending time in cages in our country. Um, so, you know, we should let you hear from the man himself. Let's get into it. Jose Saldana, welcome to What We Don't Know. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for having me here. Our first question to all guests is to describe the problem that you're working on solving. How would you describe the problem you're working on solving? Well, the problem to me is very personal. I've seen it up front in New York State as across the country. Uh, men and women, predominantly people of color, are being sentenced to longer prison terms. And they have very little opportunity for release. So in between, you have people just getting old, sick, and dying at a relatively young age. This issue of these older prisoners in America, when did this all start? Well, it basically started, I would say, in the mid-70s, even perhaps earlier than that. And I think it was the direct result of social movements for racial and social justice 
you know, it was a part of, you know, getting leadership of these movements off the streets, you know, out the arena and, and locking them up for as long as possible. And when that failed to do, uh, actually stop the movements, they started locking up the communities that supported them for long periods of time. And this is what why we have today the grain of America. Right. So you're talking about the kind of the, the racial justice movements in the 60s led to policy choices. And there's that famous, I don't know if you saw that famous quote from that Nixon administration official where he's like, the war on drugs was never about the war on drugs. It was about locking up the leadership from the hippie movement and the black power movement who we couldn't figure out how to deal with. So there's this, those decisions starting with that Nixon administration that led to these extreme sentences that then carried on towards the general population once they couldn't figure out, if I'm saying it back to you correctly, once they couldn't figure out how to extinguish that fire. That's exactly right. How did you first get introduced to this issue? Well, I was incarcerated. You know, I, I'm, I'm a former member of the Young Laws Party. So I was well aware of what the government, the state government of New York had launched against not only the Black Panther Party, but also the Young Laws Party and any movement that was challenging the status quo. At the time, we're talking about laws were changed, especially laws in reference to harming police officers. Mm. Uh, there was a time when it, if you was to shoot at a police officer, it, and, and if you don't actually injure the police officer, you will be charged with attempt assault. Yep. But then these laws started changing into attempt murder. So whether the officer was injured or not, you will be charged with attempt murder. And if you're convicted, you, you will be sentenced to 25 years to life. So I was the victim of that charge. This was in response to the tactics by the Black Panthers and the Young Lords Party. Can you, can you share a little bit about the Young Lords Party? I think a lot of people are familiar with the Black Panthers, maybe not as familiar with the Young Lords Party at this point. Well, well, the Young Lords Party actually started in Chicago. You know, a bunch of Puerto Rican, you know, gangbangers went to prison and they met uh, Fred Hampton, uh, uh, who was the chair of the Black Panther Party in Illinois at the time. Yep. So when they met him, he politicized them. So when they got out of prison, they decided, man, that, you know, Puerto Ricans are facing the same type of social and, and economic conditions. So let us do what the Black Panther Party is doing. And they created the Young Lost Party. And then the chapter opened up in New York City. I was there when they took over a church. And as a result of that, I was politicized and I became a member of the Young Lost Party. What did day-to-day look like in the Young Lords Party You know, prior to? What, what was the main pillars of being a part of that group? Well, we're talking about, I'm a first-generation Puerto Rican. Right. So my parents came here after the world. I was born in New York City. I was born in Spanish Harlem, what we call El Barrio. And, and, and we really had no real identity. You know, we, you know we, we're born here. You know, we didn't really identify with the island because for the most part, none of us went back there. And so I was just kind of just going around Spanish Harlem. You know, I was a hustler selling drugs at age 14. So when the law said I was 18 years old, still selling drugs, you know, as a result of that, uh, I started learning about my history, started learning about Puerto Rico, I started learning about the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. And, and I became not only politicized, but I also acquired an identity as to who I was. Right. And, and, you know, prior to then, I was just, you know, just not really having any identity. I was all discriminated just like anybody else was. But I felt that I shouldn't be because I wasn't black. I was a Puerto Rican. So I had that mix, 
that mixed feelings about who I who I was and who I wasn't. Right. So you end up sentenced to, to many years. What, what 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 was your sentence? Not to be voyeuristic, if you don't feel like talking about it, please feel free. We'll pass right over it. I was sentenced to 25 years to life. Uh, uh, I was in Harlem, and, and uh, I had a gun battle with police officers, and one of the officers was hit with a shotgun blast in the face. He suffered, you know, he lost his eyesight. And one of the men I was with was also shot. So as a result of that incident, I was sentenced to, attend, uh, to 25 years for attempted murder of a New York City police sergeant. And this was this was after they've imposed these new laws around protecting police by imposing these more strict, long sentences. I imagine, though, when you got in there, you weren't immediately like, how do I help these aging prisoners <laughs> you know, not die in prison? I imagine there was a process there. When did when did you start even thinking about this? You, you, you don't go to prison thinking that you're going to be old. You look at the old men, yeah, and, and you don't think that one day you're going to be just like them, right? No, uh, it took a while. You know, over the years of fighting my conviction, trying to get it reversed, there came a time where I had to come to terms, man, that this may not very end too well for me. I may just wind up doing this life sentence. And, and as the decades pass, you know, you feel it, you get old. You, you know, the aches and pains of waking up in the morning. You know, not being energized like you were when you was a youth. You know, right. Trying to run is a little more difficult. And then you see people actually dying around you. And you start to think, man, that that could be me. I could very well be the next. Because at that time, some of the people I came in with were dying at 58, 59, 60 years old. Right. So I, and that hit me real hard. I, I knew that it's a good possibility that I could be next. The data on both Correctional officers' lifespan and folks incarcerated is is wild. I think it's both under sixty is the life expectancy. At what point did you start thinking about? It's funny you use the word politicized. Like you already had this lens towards being politicized from your time with the Young Lords Party. At what at what time did you start thinking about? Hey, there's room for me to help here in in a way beyond myself. Well, initially I was involved in trying to change the law so that I can get out and people like me we can get out of prison. You know, we're all here basically under the same conditions and basically for the same things. You know, we were poor. Had we had, had we been wealthy, we would not be in a prison. We understood that. And, and I, I knew that for us to really, you know, get out of prison at a relatively productive age, that we would have to try to change the laws, especially the laws as they relate to the parole release process. So I tried to change. I tried to change the composition of the New York State Parole Board by exposing their racism and their bigotry, and not providing us with a fair hearing when we do appear before the parole board. This is while you were incarcerated. You were doing this work, correct? Right. Yes. What does that process look like? Like, was there an organization that reached out, you know, originally to you, or or were you the driving force behind this movement? How did it start? No, we created we created our own organization. We got you know you got a lot of people that study law in prison. You know, we come together. We're all in the same boat. We're all doing life sentences. Most of us will be going to a parole board. We see what the parole board is doing to people before us. So we had to change this. So we just started strategizing and working, trying to get in contact with people in the streets who are basically doing the same thing. Right, right. So, so you built like a cohort internally, start, started strategizing, then reached out to external parties. And I, I don't want to say it worked as in now we've solved the whole thing, but to a degree, things started, no, no. Things started happening. We didn't have too much success. We as 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 incarcerated people, we just did not have too much success because base 
who's really listening to somebody in prison beefing about it ain't fair. You know, no, um, what, what really worked for me is because rap, at that time, we're talking about 2011, 2012, right. rap was just being formed. And they had greater success than we could ever imagine. They were actually to gather enough evidence, sufficient evidence about the unfairness of these commissioners from law enforcement, all who had law enforcement background, and presented it to the governor using uh, parole hearing minutes as well as court decisions against these commissioners and expose them. And when their term expired, the government did not uh, reappoint them as it's customarily done. What did they expose as being unfair? Like, what was the, the primary pillars of that argument? Some of the language that they were using to us, you know, the, 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 the racial slurs, the derogatory terminology. Oh, wow. Just showing bias. Showing complete bias, interjecting their personal feelings into the hearing, interjecting their interpretation of what happened that's not really either in, in the court records or the sentencing uh, commitment papers that come with us when we are sentenced to a state prison. So they would just play prosecutor again and say, no, well, you said this happened, but this couldn't have happened because of this, this, and that. Right. They would retry the case or reinvestigate the case, which is wholly improper. It's interesting to hear that because as far since I've been around you a number of times and hearing about your work, that's not the pillars of the argument for releasing aging prisoners from what I've heard you speak about. There's, there's a whole other argument around aging out of you know, being dangerous or criminality is you know, what I hear a lot. What are, when, when you talk about this work now, what are the key pillars in the argument to releasing aging prisoners? Well, see, I mentioned that because you know, we, we obviously can't tell a parole commissioner, listen, man, I'm 60 years old. I will never commit another crime. They don't want to hear that. Right. You know, but this is how we age in prison by perpetually being denied parole. Right. And if I would have went out, you know, at the time that that I first went to the board, I would have been in my fifties. Instead, I was released at sixty six. You know, ten, eleven years later. And and the thing is that all the data, all the research, all the studies point that as people age. They age at a crime. It's not that simple. It really isn't that simple. It's not that we age at a crime. It's that we have we develop a consciousness and we develop a brand new set of values mm. that actually form the foundation of who we are. After years in prison, you don't you just do not stay the same. Is that behavior from the state where even though you're sentenced to twenty five to life, people are how, how many people are actually released at that first? At that first opportunity, that 25, is it 50, 25, 10%? Very few. At one point, the release rate for everybody going before the parole board in New York State was 4%. 4%. 4%. Right now, it's closer to 40. Wow. So, so it's improving substantially. It's improving because of the work that we've done. Was that 4% always the case, or was that part of the tactics that you, you talked about in the 70s? It wasn't just raising the minimum, but getting parole boards to deny parole over and over again was, was another tactic they put in place? Well, Governor Pataki issued an executive order not to release anybody that's been convicted of a violent crime. Wow. And the parole board, supposed to be an independent body, where they actually took their marching orders from that. And this was during the early 90s when, when, when Pataki was at the governor of New York. He issued that executive order 
and everybody ran with it. All the parole commissioners ran with it, and they would not release anybody that was convicted of a violent crime. Wow. And so from that moment on, parole releases took this nosedive down to you know what was 4%. What is helping, you're saying your, your work is helping push that up. We're now at 40%, which I'm sure you don't see as like a complete victory, but it's a huge, it's 10x from where it was. Were there specific things you did, specific things you were able to pass or, or change that have helped drive that up? What, what has been most effective in that fight? We think that first, the governor appoints the commissioners and then the New York State Senate confirms this appointment. And this is traditionally done, it's, it's a routine confirmation. Nobody questions the governor's appointments. But what we did, we questioned the governor's appointments. What we did, we presented evidence. Once we knew who the governor was appointing, and he was mostly appointing people from law enforcement backgrounds, mm. we galvanized evidence against these people who were parole officers, revocation parole officers, gave the evidence to the senators, and they question these appointees about the evidence that we presented. And, and as this process became now a political process. Now it was no longer a routine process. Now they were actually questioning these appointees. And in one case, for the first time in New York State history, a governor appointee was not confirmed by the New York State Senate. Wow. So you're, you're advocating, and it makes sense, uh, advocating against folks who have this law enforcement background that obviously have bias. Do you find yourself in a position strong enough now to advocate for certain people? And like, what is the right profile of someone to sit on a parole board, in your opinion? Like, who, who is the perfect person to sit in that position? Well, we believe that the right persons to be in such a sensitive position, such a powerful position, because you control literally thousands of people every year coming for you, is someone from a, with a social service background, mm. a teacher, you know, or someone from the clergy, people who can accept that human beings can and do transform their lives, even in prison. I want to go back a little bit to your story because I want to hear when, when you first met Rap, where were you in the world and how you came to be in the position you are now with the organization? Well, I, I, like I said, I was fighting the parole board. You know, it was like a, a, a one-man fight, an individual fight against a, a, a huge monster. And this is when? This was in the 2012. Got it. And so over the years of being denied parole, uh, I knew that rap, I was in contact with rap, the rap founders, um, because we want to, you know, we want power. We want to have the power to expose these commissioners for what they were doing to us. And, and in 2017, what rap did is they, they uh, this is when they exposed these commissioners Five of them were not reappointed. They weren't reappointed. And instead, the governor appointed six new commissioners. Uh, one of these new commissioners was, a, 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 she had a social service background. And she had a young a, a activist background when she was younger in her college days. And she was somehow managed to get appointed to, to the parole board. And three months after she was appointed, she was the lead commissioner when I appeared. So the lead commissioner is the one that asks you most of the questions. And he or she makes the determination because the other commissioners are basically looking at the folder of the person, the next person appearing before them, the one they're going to be interviewing. Right. So uh, she asked me, unlike all the other interviews that I had where they focus entirely about the crime that I committed in 1979, uh, they wouldn't want to talk about my degrees, nothing else but the crime. 
Just the she crime. She asked me one question. Just, she asked me just one question about the crime. She started off the interview by asking me questions about the crime. And so I thought it was just going to be the same old story again. And then she paused. She said, okay, now let's talk about what you've been doing the last 38 years. And she and usually these interviews don't last more than 10 to 12 minutes. Right. This interview lasted 35 minutes because she wanted to know what I've been doing the last 38 years. I submitted a parole package. So she wanted to know about the programs that I either developed or participated that were not part of the Department of Correction curriculum. So we had a, a real ongoing discussion about this. And based on what was before her, she determined that I did not pose a risk to public safety, and she released me. Mm. So, But the interesting thing is that Amazing. rap was instrumental in her becoming a commissioner. You know, you know, they actually referred her to those who can refer people to, to, to the governor for, for a commissioner's uh, appointment. You know, and I knew this, you know, as soon as I knew who I was going to appear before, I said, wow, okay, I think I got a shot here. So I realized that rap was very instrumental in me being released because had it not been for rap's advocacy, she would not be there. Had it not been for rap's advocacy, the parole board would have still been dominated by law enforcement. So naturally, I had, a, I had an obligation, a moral duty, so to speak, to report to duty once I got out. Other than these parole boards, what are the other big strategies in terms of getting folks out of prison before they're, you know, reaching their 50s, 60s, 70s? Well, we advocate for, for two bills. First, to transform the parole board from a punitive-minded to a future-focused-minded board mm. uh, with 19 commissioners, all who believe in rehabilitation, all who believe and value transformation. And then we have two legislative initiatives that we advocate for. We call the Elder Parole Bill, which provides that if a person is 55 years old and has served 15 years, this person will automatically be entitled to a parole interview. It does not guarantee that the person will be released. And the idea is to give someone that's getting older, because 55 years in prison is more like 65. For someone who's getting older, at least the opportunity to go home where he can still be productive, or she, where they can still be productive as opposed to releasing them after repeated denials and they're 80 years old. And, and now they're a burden on the family and everybody else. Right. And then the other bill, which gives me, because this bill only offers hope to people. The other bill gives meaning to this hope is the Fantasy Parole Bill, which stops the paradigm of perpetual punishment, that constant denial, denial, denial for the one thing no one could ever change. Because the, the fair time that parole bill provides that a person will be judged and measured by who he or she is today, not who they were 45 years ago. If these things pass and, and, and we get a lot better at releasing aging prisoners, what kind of effect would that have on mass incarceration as a whole? How many people are we talking about that are 50, 55 and above? Well, in New York State, I can, I can give you the numbers for New York. In New York State, you have roughly a couple of thousand people who will benefit immediately if it becomes law. But the ones who will benefit really the most is the ones who are closer to 65 and have already served over three decades. Right. These are the ones that really, because another five years, might not, they might not have another five years left. Right. 
So we'll be releasing immediately those who are like, we have 70 year olds that have decades in prison, hundreds of them. So these are the ones that will immediately benefit if this would become the law. And, and what that does, it, it will address a horror of mass incarceration. And this is a father or grandfather seeing a son in prison. We're talking about two, three generations of people, mostly from the black and brown community, being in prison, if not in the same prison, knowing that my son is in another prison in New York State somewhere in a cell, just like the cell that I'm in. Uh, last question, and then we're going to go into the quick hitters. If you're as successful as possible, if rap is as successful as possible, what's true about the world in 10 years? What do you hope to say? It's hard to think that far ahead when so many people are dying. Yeah. Uh, we just got some good news yesterday that uh, the state Senate is going to put one of our bills on the agenda. Fantastic. That will pass the committee. And then it goes to the Which floor. Which bill is this? The Timely bill. But then we have the supermajority in both houses in New York. So uh, if this bill was to pass, this almost, and I hate to use this word because our electors are so afraid of it, it creates the presumption of release at the first board. Yeah. You know, obviously it won't do nothing for the people doing life without parole because that's the unique thing about the other parole bill in the case a sentence of life without parole because right. you will go to the parole board after 15 years if you're 55. But if both bills was to pass, this would be a groundbreaking reforms. You know, I'm an abolitionist. There's no victory in numbers to me. You know, it has to go towards, you know, we fight to decarcerate, not for numbers, but until there are no more in prison. Because I know that there are alternatives that are far more humane and more effective than putting people in cages. So we're looking, you know, I don't see abolition happening in 10 years. I'm thinking that maybe the next generation could carry it a little further. But I see the, the system in New York changing to the point where uh, justice is not defined as punishment. You know, justice values human transformation. I feel like sometimes, you know, people in this work, they talk about those things being conflicting, like pragmatic improvements to the justice system and abolition. But it seems to me like having the people in the, you know, positions of power think through a release mindset and think about people's improvement and everything, all this leads to a change in culture and ideology that then opens the door to the types of conversations I think you and I agree we need to have and the, the types of true, true system reformation that we need to have. I don't know if those things happen if we don't force these incremental changes to happen, these incremental changes in thought process. I mean, what you're talking about is not just a policy change, but it's a full thought process change when people sit down at these parole board hearings. And I imagine the great majority of people, if they're facing a parole board that's asking, what have you done since you've been incarcerated? How are you doing today? The majority of those answers will be positive ones. It's an incentive for everybody. Right. Well, I, I really hope you exceed to that extent and, and that we do have that system. And it's great to hear that we might know the answer to that question in less than 10 years. We, we might we might be working within a system like that uh, much sooner. All right. What's the most impactful book you've read lately? Um, the one book that I always reflect on is, you know, I'm a history buff. I love history. So I, I like to read about uh, revolutionary history movements, you know, third world movements for national liberation. That's what I love to read. When you read about these, who's a change maker that inspires you most? Who do, who do you really like to study? 
Ernesto Che Guevara. You know, he, he wasn't the figure that during his lifetime, he really wasn't, it was, he was more like a, a local folk hero. But over the decades, he became a, such a, a meaningful figure, an internationalist, because this is what was so great about him, in my opinion, that he felt that freedom has to be on an international level. People have to be free from these type of oppressions, capitalism, imperialism. And to me, this is my vision, that it's not just about racism. It's the system that created racism. Capitalism is the greater evil. Okay, last one. You're super successful in your work, super impactful. What habit helps you most do what you do? Discipline. Uh, I, I, you know, I always say that the same things that kept me alive and sane in prison for close to four decades, I can't abandon them. I don't drink. I don't use drugs. I continue to exercise on a regular basis. I try to eat as healthy as possible, though I'm, I'm a little on the junk side sometimes, you know, but I do try to <laughs> eat, eat, eat and, and work out. If I, if I ate too much junk, I run an extra mile or so. But I try to maintain focus and treat people, all people, as best as I can. I recognize the humanity of every living soul on this planet. It's so beautiful. Well, Jose Saldana, thank you for coming on the show. We're going to close this thing out by giving you the floor, brother. Thank you so much for being here. Okay. I, I would like to just say a story about first person that, that recognized my humanity and took the time out to educate me and became my first mentor. He died last August, just a few months ago. He, he was 73 years old. He has served 48 years. He was appearing before the parole board for his 14th time. And during the hearing, he asked the commissioners if he could be excused to go to the bathroom. I guess they must have looked at that as an unusual uh, uh, request because usually people want to stay there and you know, deal with the hearing. But they said, sure, they let him go to the bathroom and he never returned. He had a massive stroke in a prison bathroom floor. This guy was a scholar. He came in without a GED, no high school education, none, none whatsoever. And he became, he had multiple college degrees. He became a scholar, a historian, and he was a gentleman. And he was a brother to everyone. It didn't matter the color, the language, the faith. He treated everyone as a brother. And this is the man that was allowed to die in prison. And this is what inspires me to not have any more men die in prison. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jose. It's such a such an honor to have you on, brother. And I, I, you know, I, I'm here for your work. And you know, always let me know how I can be most helpful. Uh, we're here to support you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.